Welcome to episode 237 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Why, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Fast, Feast, Repeat, the comprehensive guide to delay, don't deny, intermittent fasting. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right, we're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door, and they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild-caught. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and 100% grass-finished. Their chicken is free-range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast with code ifpodcast. And we'll put all this information in the show notes.
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 237 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I am here today with a very, very special guest, Oh my goodness, friends. I am so excited. So I talk about a lot of people on this show. As you guys know, I'm always throwing you author recommendations and people to listen to. And I think I can honestly say that probably the person I have talked about the most is a Mr. Rob Wolf. And that is because when I first fell into the whole diet world, I was doing low carb. And then in 2012, 
I read a book called The Paleo Solution, and that honestly just changed my life. Um, and since then, I became a little bit of a Rob Wolf fangirl, listened to his podcast, his book since then. So he also wrote Wire to Eat, which I know I talked about at length on this show. That is a really cool book if you're interested in learning how we all react completely differently to carbs in particular. So um, macronutrients and how things affect people differently. And then after that, he wrote Sacred Cow, which is all about the regenerative agriculture world, which is so, so important to me. And I will put links in the show notes because we actually did an episode on that book on the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. So I will link to that. And then beyond that, Rob also released the Sacred Cow documentary, which I just watched. By the way, Rob, I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't watched it yet, but it was incredible. I watched it on Amazon Prime. And then lastly, well, not lastly, but lastly for this intro, Rob is one of the amazing figures behind Element, which is an electrolyte company supplement that you guys love, love, love. And so we just figured it was high time to have an educational episode on electrolytes, especially because it relates so much to people doing fasting and it has really benefited so many of you guys. I hear from you all the time about it. So I have collected a lot of listener questions about electrolytes and then maybe some other topics if we have time. But yes, I'm just so excited. Rob, well, thank you so much for being here. If I grin anymore, my head may literally split in half and just fall off. Thank you. I I am so honored by the intro. Thank you very much. You've been on the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast twice, and I think I told you this at the time, but I I literally almost started crying the first time I interviewed you, which has never (laughs) happened before um, in an interview. So I'm just so in awe and so grateful for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. So so to start things off, I did a second interview with Rob on the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast all about electrolytes. So if you want a really, really deep dive into that conversation that we had, I'll put a link to that. But in today's episode, I have a lot of listener questions about electrolytes. But before we get to that, Rob, I mean, a lot of my listeners are probably very familiar, but would you like to tell them just a little bit about your personal story? I mean, I want to hear like your entire life story, but but I guess what led you to um, developing Element, the topic of today's show? I did an undergrad in biochemistry and was looking at either medical school or more of a PhD research route in the autoimmunity cancer area. And around this time, I developed ulcerative colitis, really, really terrible case of it. I'm five foot nine, about 170 pounds. It, at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I was about 125, 130 pounds. So I, I was a mess. I knew enough about ulcerative colitis at that time that the surgery was kind of the main option on the table. Some immunosuppressant drugs were also kind of in the potential future. And I knew enough about things at that point that, that I, I did not want to head down that road. And kind of a complex set of circumstances put the idea that maybe my my diet was the cause of of my ulcerative colitis and I started doing some some researching and this is about 1998 mind you and this idea of a paleo diet got on my radar I did a little bit of research there wasn't a lot of material at that time there were only a few folks you know kind of kind of anthropologists researching things 
But what I found was really compelling. It talked a lot about kind of Neolithic foods, grains and, and stuff like that. And for some people, they do wonderfully on them. And for other folks, they, they oftentimes have some GI and autoimmune related problems. And that really seemed to describe me. I, I was sick enough that I figured, what have I got to lose? And so I, I embarked on what would now be considered kind of a, a lower carb paleo type diet. And it was nothing short of life-saving for me. It was really miraculous. I've continued to tinker and fiddle and improve my my health over the intervening 23 years. But as as good as things were eating that way, particularly for like my blood sugar levels, you know, not suffering carb crashes and not having uh, kind of weird GI problems and whatnot, I participate some old guy Brazilian jiu-jitsu when I was really early in the CrossFit scene. I, I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gym. So I've, I've been around activities most of my life that are pretty high intensity and if people ever have ever tried to do high intensity activity on a low carb diet, it's tough. The, the fueling just seems completely at odds. And it was a lot of struggle. I spent a lot of time on the, on the struggle bus trying to figure out, can I add some carbs around workouts or post-workout or, you know, different things to try to fuel my, my training and also feel pretty good. But I eventually met two guys, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, who are the founders of a community called Keto Gains. And they have hundreds of thousands of people in this community, and they're just doing amazing body composition transformations with them, uh, mainly women, about 85% women between the age of like 35 and 55 thereabouts. People were, were you know, getting amazing body composition changes. We weren't seeing crazy like menstrual cycle issues or or low thyroid and whatnot. And I started asking these guys, I'm like, what are you what are you doing that's different? And then what do I need to do to be better at what I'm doing? And when they, you know, in the long and short of it was that I and many other people, when they are doing low carb or fasting, folks tend to be deficient in electrolytes in general, sodium in particular, which is kind of a con controversial topic because we're told time and again that, that sodium is something that needs to be limited. And we can kind of dig into why that is here in a bit. But as most people will do when they have a, a world expert giving you advice, I ignored their advice at first. I said, oh, I salt my food. I'm totally, I'm totally squared away, you know? And, and the, the thing was, is that I, I, when I finally listened to them, weighed and measured my food, really did a proper accounting of the amount of electrolytes I was consuming. They wanted me at at least five grams of sodium per day, and I was getting less than two grams of sodium per day. So I, I, I fixed that initially by just literally drinking some pickle juice, which I, I like and is actually a, a wonderful option in, in this whole sodium electrolyte story. And I felt better immediately. And then I tried some pickle juice pre and post jujitsu training, which I'm sure I had the most amazing breath ever on, on that particular training day. But I felt really, really good. Like I had this low gear that I just didn't remember having for ages. And so I circled back with Tyler and Luis. I'm like, hey, the sodium thing is really, really important. They're like, yeah, we've known that for 10 years. You know, <laughs> you're an idiot. So we, we put together a free downloadable guide that we called Keto Aid. And it was basically take this much table salt, this much no salt, which is potassium chloride, a little bit of magnesium citrate, some lemon juice, stevia, water, shake it up and, and 
you know, use it. And within six months, we had like a half million downloads of this thing when we released it. And which we thought was great. It was really helping people. But then folks started asking us for a convenient option. Like they would mention that they were traveling and they're going through TSA and the TSA would kind of look stink eye at them for having three bags of white powder in their carry-on bag and stuff like that, you know? And so it, it was really, Tyler and Luis were very dialed in on the need for electrolytes within the context of like fasting and low carb diets. When I became aware of that, it, you know, it just kind of was world shaking. And I knew that the bulk of the problems that folks in both my community and, and kind of the, the bigger ancestral health community, that so many of the problems that people were facing were kind of electrolyte driven. And so we started with this freemium option. We just wanted the information out there. And we talked about things like pickle juice and olives and salami being really nutritious sources of sodium rich food. So, you know, don't, you don't just have to drink it, but ideally you get it as part of your diet too. And then it was actually the folks using that that free downloadable guide that they, they goosed us into starting this product. Like we really didn't set out with the plan of selling people salt, but there was a, a clearly a need there and, you know, knock on wood, but it looks like we, we really found a, a need and, and have a great solution to it. And everything has gone wonderfully. Like, uh, you, you know, partners like we, we have with you have been able to spread this message and the, the really cool thing in it, it really jives with my nutritional philosophy is, you know, if you're struggling at some point, let's figure out a game plan. Let's generate kind of a, a hypothesis or an idea about what's going on. And then let's test it. Let's try something. And you give it a day, you give it a week, you give it a month, you know, whatever the timeline makes, makes sense on that. And then we can assess it. And if you're looking, feeling, performing better then cool, if not, then we'll iterate and keep going. And what we've generally found with the electrolyte story is that folks just feel better immediately when they get this addressed. And it's really, it's a very enviable place to be when you have some sort of a, a product because it's like, I, I've taken vitamins and minerals and different things over the years. And I think they're helpful, but I don't know that I really notice all that much of a difference, you know, and it's like, oh, this protein powder is great. And, you know, it was good in a shake, but I don't know if it's really like doing something for me other than, you know, it's just food of, of some kind. But when you were off on electrolytes and then you fix it, the, the results are so profound and it's kind of over the top that it, it's kind of hard to ignore. And that's been a really cool position to be in because we, you know, we do free giveaway stuff and whatnot. We're like, just try it and then let us know how it goes. And it, it is led to really remarkable growth. So there you go. Yeah, that is an incredible story. And that's what I was actually just thinking was like the times when I think I definitely needed electrolytes and then had them, you feel it right away. Like it literally feels like a light switch going on or something. And I was also just thinking that it wasn't really until I had the episode with you on the other show and we dived really deep into electrolytes. I realized because I've had this show for you know over 200 episodes now and people ask us questions all the time about having issues with fatigue or lethargy or just not thriving, especially on like a low carb diet. And it wasn't until you, I really became aware of this whole electrolyte thing that I was like, oh, I, this is something I should have been recommending for a long time. Um, so apologies to listeners if I dropped the ball on that. Well, I only dropped the ball for 22 years. So 
keep that in mind. I, I'm, I'm like the biochemist guy and I dropped the ball for 22 years. So no, no worry. Picking the ball back up. Really random personal question. I'm curious, how many colonoscopies did you have in your adventures with UC? Like two or three. It wasn't that many. Like they verified it. And then just clinically, the symptoms, you know, kind of kind of loose stools and, and gas and just pain, like really pretty remarkable pain was a, a pretty good bellwether for, you know, what my my current status was. Yeah. I just asked because I, I just had my third one like a few weeks ago. So I thought maybe you might have been up there with me with the colonoscopies. Fun times. Yeah, we're around that two to three level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually about to get the pill cam, which I'm excited about. Oh, interesting. Nervous about the EMFs, but whatever. We'll see in the name of science. I'm definitely in a minority here, but I'm not nearly as freaked out about EMFs as a lot of people are. And I, I take some heat for that. I, I did a piece. It was more COVID related right at the beginning of COVID, but it really was a I, I'm a biochemist by training, but I really like physics and I was reasonably good at it. And I got in and, and looked at it the way a physicist would with like the m amount of energy released, the type of energy and all that type of stuff. And like, I don't know that I would want to do hot yoga on top of a, you know, like a, an electrical transformer <laughs> deal, you know, but there are these things like the inverse square law where when you get twice as far away from a source, it's four times less powerful and all these, all these types of things. So I'm way, way less worried about EMFs than a lot of people are and particularly in a situation like this where it's a transient process. I, 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 that seems like a, a completely trivial risk profile in my mind. No, thank you. That, that makes me feel better. I actually did an interview this week on it and he was talking about that, about, you know, how quickly it does dissipate when you're farther away. And then also the cost benefit of what is this bringing you? And I think the cost benefit, even though it's going to be super close up to my intestinal cells. So, but short time and good information should come from it. So very measured approach, but back to electrolytes <laughs> and I'm, stopping myself from just asking all my own personal questions because I know people have a lot of questions. So this is something that you just touched on in your intro and it was kind of knowing, well, maybe I don't know if you actually said it or I just thought about it when you said it, but actually knowing what you need when it comes to electrolytes. So for example, we have a question from Nikki and she said, I had heard when it comes to electrolytes, everybody needs a different combination in order to be really effective. How do you know what the right combination is for your body? Does it depend on your gut microbiome? And then just looping in with that one, Josie says, how would you even know if electrolytes are out of balance? So is it individual to the person? It is, but, you know, it, it is, but our physiology is pretty good at sorting that out if we give it the right stuff. So you know, person A versus person B versus person C, they may have some individual needs there, but let's just put on like our, our evolutionary biology hat for a second. Like if we're living as a hunter-gatherer tribe or even like a, you know, late 18th century farming community, how do you customize every single situation for a given person, you know? And that gets a little bit crazy, but this is where our our sense of taste, our appetite for things like like sodium like out of all the molecules that are involved in in health like vitamin d and vitamin a and and you know b vitamins all these things have a flavor like they will taste like something 
but literally a huge chunk of our sense of taste, sweet, salty, sour, umami, like is allocated to sodium. And sodium, when it's found in fairly high concentrations in foods, usually denotes some um, some high nutrient density and stuff like that. So so our most organisms really have a draw towards sodium. And the symptoms of low electrolytes are maybe one of the best places to start there because I think it starts giving folks kind of an operational framework for figuring out what's going on. And early signs of of low electrolyte status. And when I say that, I'm really mainly focusing on sodium and maybe we could get a little nuance to that in a minute, but lethargy, fatigue, brain fog, those are kind of the early signs and symptoms. As it gets later, we might see an elevated heart rate because we have both low sodium and low total body water, which would be dehydration. And we want the right amount of water, you know, going through our circulatory system when the when the heart loads to get ready to pump, there's actually it's almost like bouncing on a trampoline. Like if we're bouncing on a floor, not much rebound. And if we bounce on like a gymnastics mat, there, there's maybe a little bit of rebound, but it, you know, it's, it's actually kind of soaking up the energy. But when we bounce on a trampoline, when you get that thing going properly, you're actually benefiting from some of the energy of loading the trampoline to launch you back into the air. And when our heart is properly loaded with the blood volume, it, it's very efficient. And when we lose fluid volume, when we become dehydrated, the, the blood volume can become low enough that the heart doesn't really load in the proper fashion. And then it needs to be faster to get the same rate of circulation going through our, our body. And so the, it's a stress on the heart. So elevated heart rate is one of these later stage signs and symptoms of, of inadequate electrolytes and also hydration. And then further down the road is things like cramping, you know, like getting toe cramps and calf cramps and stuff like that. Like once we get to that point of cramping, then we are really, really quite far down the, the you know, low sodium, inadequate sodium, improper electrolyte status. And, and some people, when they're in that phase, like they, particularly if they're fasting or, or low carb, if they go from like seated to standing, they may get very lightheaded and almost like pass out and, and whatnot. And so that's kind of a spectrum of the symptoms that one might experience when they are low in electrolytes. And, you know, oftentimes that like mid-afternoon energy slump, it's a variety of things that could go into it, but oftentimes it's it's low electrolytes. Like folks will notice that if they drink some electrolytes, you know, in lieu of like a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, getting some more caffeine in their system, what they find is they just needed some more electrolytes and then they feel really good. And when you consider the fact that our sodium potassium pumps are the main energy production centers in our body, like this is the way we make ATP. This is the way we make energy for every single thing that we do. It makes sense that if our electrolytes are a little bit off, then our energy and, and kind of the way that we feel will be a little bit off. And I, I know one of the, the folks had a question around, does, does gut microbiota influence this? It, it does. If somebody has, say, like SIBO and, you know, very rapid gut transit, it's very easy for these folks to become electrolyte deficient because they tend to have kind of loose, watery stools. And so the, the gut contents are going through so fast that the, 
large intestine and the colon aren't able to do their job of reabsorbing water and electrolytes and keeping that balance. And so folks with different types of SIBO or other kind of permeable gut situations, they can find themselves in an electrolyte deficient state pretty easily. And this may be some of the kind of chronic fatigue and lethargy that these folks experience because they're constantly dumping that that water and sodium and so feeling kind of rough as a consequence. Gotcha. And actually, that just made me think of a question about the actual hydration process as it relates to like the water, (laughs) the water we take in, the water in our intestines compared to the actual hydration status of our cells. So like, for example, we got a question from her name is Met, I think, but she says she's pregnant and she sometimes throws up because of it. She wants to know, does throwing up mess with your electrolytes? How much does it actually affect our electrolytes and how bad does it have to be to cause harm? And if it does cause harm, can it be canceled out in some way by taking supplements? So that question, and then I was just thinking like, you know, losing water, throwing up or taking in a lot of water through drinking or through food, how does that actually compare to the like the hydration status of your body? Because they often say that like your intestines, the stuff in your intestines is actually outside your body in a way. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's a it's a tube, you know, it's effectively a tube from mouth to hoo-ha, you know, and and technically that stuff is all outside of one's body. That that story of of say like vomiting and the potential health effects there, it it can affect electrolytes, but the thing that it affects sooner than that is pH. And because our, our stomach contents contain a lot of acid, hydrochloric acid, if we lose a lot of stomach contents from vomiting, people can end up in a very dangerous situation of being hyperalkalinized. Our, our pH, this is actually a really cool and kind of a, a well-timed question and ability to comment on this stuff. If we think about the most tightly regulated processes in our body, arguably pH and electrolytes are it. Like if if you or I show up unconscious to an emergency room, the very first thing that the doctor is going to do is check our electrolytes and our pH. Like that, you know, heart rate and stuff like that. <laughs> is he or she still breathing? You know, we're going to tick that box. But when they start doing some lab work, electrolytes and pH pH goes a little high or a little low and we get sick or we can die. Electrolytes go a little off and we can get sick and we can die. And there's really a pretty narrow window there. Now, if you throw up once or twice, yes, you're you're offloading some acid and transiently your body is going to be in a bit more of an alkaline state, but then your body will just not dump as much carbon dioxide out breathing, your kidneys will will not excrete as much uh, or will excrete more bicarbonate. And so the, there's ways that the body will adjust to that pretty quickly. What becomes problematic is if this is really explosive for you know, lack of a better term. Oral rehydration therapy was developed for people with cholera, which is a a gut microbe which causes really, really severe water loss via diarrhea. And that can create an electrolyte imbalance that can kill you. And so oral rehydration therapy is very sodium forward. It has potassium and magnesium also, but it also has a little bit of glucose to really accentuate the uptake of the electrolytes. This has kind of been turned into this idea that you can only absorb electrolytes in the presence of glucose, which is not true, but it can enhance it. But 
Like that's another example of, you know, an acute situation in which we are dumping either acid in the case of vomiting or electrolytes in the case of very severe diarrhea that could get ahead of our body's ability to deal with that. And it can get ahead of anything we can do orally to to fix it. It, it can even get out ahead of IV therapy to be able to, to stay ahead of that stuff. And that's why these things can become life-threatening emergency situations. Now, all that stuff said... Generally, in the case of like morning sickness, this is not what what folks are are facing. You know, it, unless it's really severe and really prolonged, I I just don't see that being a a super significant problem. Some folks do report that consuming saltier beverages like chicken broth or pickle juice or or maybe something like Element helps with the the morning sickness symptoms. Uh, you know, but there's a lot of different things out there that range in the quality of the the research that supports it but there is some that that suggests that sodium rich you know kind of beverages can help bubbly beverages can help but it's not something i would be super worried about it's just something that you you know you would take care of with your your general nutrition and and hydration and and whatnot will will you know sort it out pretty thoroughly my little quick throw up story and i'm just telling you this because i know you might relate to the reason that this happened. I haven't thrown up in like forever, but I was playing around with nicotine patches and I <laughs> I guess guess I was not ready for that nicotine patch and I was like, "Oh, this is like college." <laughs> um, so, note to self, do not put on too much of a nicotine patch. Nicotine's a really cool molecule for cognitive enhancement, neuroprotection, but man, you got to really wade into the water carefully. That was my problem because I had been doing them for a while daily and I stopped. And so then I just like jumped back in and then it was like, not a good idea. So (laughs) going back to the hydration aspect, I had this question and so did Katie. When does or where does the difference between hydrating and dehydrating happen? She says salt is used as an electrolyte, but too much is a desiccant. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. This is like, you know, chapters of, of uh, physiology textbook. And I'm trying to think of a. It's a really, really good question. And it, it, it shows like a, actually a deep understanding, even asking the question. But it, in any given situation, our hydration status, and th- this is worth mentioning if you, it, in general parlance, like if we, we look at like a uh, you know, a checkout counter magazine, typically they'll talk about hydration and it only only what they're talking about is water. But if we look in a textbook of med- medical physiology, hydration means the water and the electrolytes that go along with it. And, and that's one thing that we missed in this whole story that it, we really should be thinking about the electrolytes that are supposed to accompany the water to, to reach kind of a, a balanced position there. We tend to have more sodium outside of cells and more potassium inside of cells. And our body spends a lot of energy to create that gradient because then when, when the process of sodium going towards potassium and potassium going towards sodium is involved in things like the, the action potentials of muscles, the way our muscles contract, the way you know we breathe and the, the nerve impulses in our brain, like it really kind of underlies everything that we do is, is the... The, the gradient of these sodium potassium pumps. And this thing is dynamic. It's ever changing. Like there's kind of bracketed ranges that they ideally exist within. And it's worth mentioning that 
if we are too low in sodium, it becomes challenging for the body to stay on top of that. And this is a situation where, like, unfortunately, every marathon, every triathlon, there are folks that get hospitalized and occasionally they die because they are working at a really high output. It might be hot. It might be humid. The, the individual is sweating. And when we sweat, we lose about 100 to 1 sodium to potassium. The, the main thing that comes out with our sweat is water and sodium. So that sodium becomes depleted at a very rapid clip. And if we just add water on top of that, it, it, it the side where, you, you know, internally in our body, what we're doing is further diluting the amount of sodium that's still available. There, there was some, some old kind of folk wisdom, you know, 1940s, 1950s, that folks would say, you shouldn't drink water unless you can have some salt tablets with it because it'll worsen cramping. And now people kind of look at that and they're like, oh, that's crazy. But it was actually some really good advice. And, and clearly this runs into a problem at some point, like you're going to die of dehydration or, you know, there, there's going to be problems. But there's, there's danger associated with drinking water absent adequate electrolytes. The, the thing about all this stuff is that so long as we provide adequate sodium to the body, the kidneys do a really good job of sorting out whether we have too much or too little. If we have inadequate sodium, however, it's difficult for the body to get ahead of that. Like it, it, it can become kind of a, a downward spiral. And I, I do like the point that, that was made in the question, you know, at some point, sodium can become a, a desiccant. I mean, this is how we make jerky and part of how we, we can foods and whatnot. So there, there is kind of a, a, a dose limitation on that. Clearly, when we make the recommendations with element around how much water to dilute the element in when you are at 32 ounces per stick pack, then you're in what's called a slightly hypo. It's slightly more dilute than what we would have in our body's fluids. So it's a little bit more water relative to the electrolytes. If you're at about 24, 25 ounces, then you're, you're what's called isotonic. It's about the same ratio of water to electrolytes as what you would find in the body. And then in the case of about 16 ounces, it's called hypertonic. And so it's more concentrated in electrolytes relative to what our body is. Generally, we want to consume things that are either isotonic or slightly hypotonic. If you're having a good margarita base, I think making it hypertonic is fantastic because it tastes amazing. But again, our, our physiology is pretty crafty at sorting that out so long as we kind of prioritize the right things. And I don't know if that was a good answer to that very good question, but that, 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 was, that was my best stab at it for sure. We have another question that, because I was just thinking about the nuance that you were talking about with how if we're depleted in sodium, adding you know too much water would it, might actually make things worse by further diluting everything. This is kind of the flip side of that. Nicole said, I've heard that taking too many electrolytes when you don't need them causes the body to flush them out to keep the body balanced and usually results in a deficit when you need them soon after. Example, pre-gaming with electrolytes and then working out could create this deficit, then they aren't there when you need them during the actual workout. How does one know if you could benefit from them during a fast, excluding the typical symptoms without your body trying to flush the excess and creating a deficit, which might affect you later during the fast. So does that happen? Can that flip side thing happen where if you add too many electrolytes, it kind of gets rid of them? 
Not really. I guess if you did like a, a really, not really accurate, like if you had a really hypertonic solution, like very, very concentrated, one thing that could happen is folks can get disaster pants because it actually pulls fluid into the, the intestinal contents, trying to dilute it effectively. And it will, and it's just really physics doing this. It, it, uh, it pulls water into the gut. So like if something is really hypertonic, you could end up with uh, GI upset and, and diarrhea. The, the other side of this is that, you know, our body is, is changing. We, we talk about homeostasis, but this is a, a moving scale. And again, it kind of exists within brackets, like sodium levels may go up, they may go down, but you know, it's going to be a, a cyclic process there. So it, trying to think of a good so we've we've been able to do some really cool work with like some nhl teams the big hockey player guys and these are some pretty big dudes pretty athletic 200 220 pounds these guys because of the gear they're wearing and the amount of activity they're doing they will lose 10 pounds of water in a game and that 10 pounds of water may may remove as much as 10 grams of sodium in the course of the game now, these guys need to prehydrate pretty aggressively, and they need to be topping that off as much as they can during the game. And then after the game, they're still going to need to, to continue topping that back off, or they're going to be really depleted, you know, like the next day. And this is where they, they go to bed and they have like the elevated heart rate and whatnot because their, their electrolyte status is really depleted. So through the course of a game, even if the person preloads the electrolytes and then they begin sweating and they're still trying to drink some and top it off. I mean, if we're only consuming 32 ounces of water, you know, on, on some cadence and it's only got a gram of sodium, but at the end of two hours, we've lost 10 grams of sodium. We may still be significantly sodium depleted relative to where we started. So we're going to need to take additional steps to, to address that. So, I mean, in a physical activity standpoint, I'm much more concerned about ending up depleted than I am kind of like overcharging maybe a little bit on, on the front end and, and then certainly paying attention while we're, we're doing the event. So that was the example of athletes, but in general, let's say that you take in a certain amount of electrolytes, sodium in particular, and then you go super high on sodium. Is it individual how long it would take to go back to what you were before? Like I've noticed with me, if I, if I'm just following my normal diet and then I have like a super salty day, it's almost like I feel my body losing the salt over like two or three days. I don't know. Is it individual how long that process lasts? Yeah, but, but that sounds about right. That sounds about right. And I mean, you might even experience that on a a per meal basis, like our lunches, I, my daughters are seven and nine and we homeschool and with a whole family does jujitsu. And like, we, we have a really cool life, but it's very, very busy. And I can pull off cooking breakfast and I can pull off cooking dinner. I can't pull off like a, a hot lunch. You know, it just, it just doesn't happen. It, it, it's where the wheels fall off the wagon. And so lunch is frequently like a charcuterie board. It's like salami and cheese and olives and, and pickles and all that stuff. And that's mainly what we do for, for lunch, like probably five days out of seven, or we have some leftovers from, from something else. And what I notice is that if I don't do that charcuterie board type thing, which is very sodium rich, 
then I'll usually want some element somewhere later in the day. But if I do something like the charcuterie board, then I'm just doing like water or tea because I got the sodium from that, that meal, you know, and I just, even if I taste element, then even if it's properly diluted, it tastes really salty because I already consumed more than enough sodium for that, that window of time. The days that I have those salty days, it's usually I, whatever reason, I'm like craving the the deli meat, organic turkey, and the sodium just like shoots up through the roof, especially because I eat so much protein and meat that if I go overboard on that, um, <laughs> it really lasts. So another question about the timing. So Dorothy says, and we danced around this or kind of addressed it, but just to clarify, she says, how long does an electrolyte stay in your body before needing replenishment? I'm an avid walker slash hiker and gardener. And then similarly, Holly says, and she has a little, some kind word. She says, I'm so glad you're having Rob Wolf on again. He is a great source of information. And I am only recently learning how electrolytes play such a profound role in our physiology. My question is, are we better off taking electrolytes in a consistent lower concentration throughout the day, or will your body store higher doses to some degree for use later when needed? For example, I think I heard somewhere that taking them as a shot is a thing. So I assume that way they're quite concentrated. It's tough to say on this. And and so the main thing that I, I recommend is folks, it slays me because I'm a biochemist by training. I love like really solid empirical benchmarks. And I just, the, the dosing thing is one of the most challenging features of this because it really does depend. We, we spent two years living in Texas and even on Christmas Day, it was like 85 degrees and 90% humidity, you know, and I used a remarkable amount of electrolytes, even just kind of like living, you know, I, not a jujitsu day, not a workout day, just motoring along. We live in Montana now, and it's much cooler. And although it's dry, it's not like bone dry here, like what it was when we lived in Reno, Nevada. And so I find my electrolyte needs are just generally less. Now, if I do a class of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, if I do a pretty long workout or something, then my electrolyte needs go up. And I've just gotten to a point where I just pay attention to how I'm feeling. Like, am I feeling a little lethargic, my little, you, you know, a little bit off? And I, I've just also kind of noticed that, you know, I know the things that like, okay, jiu-jitsu, I really don't want to go to a class without some electrolytes. If we're going to do just a walk around the neighborhood, no big deal. If we're going to go a two, two hour hike and like, I might end up carrying the kids on part of this hike, then I'm definitely going to want some electrolytes. So I think you just have to play with it a little bit. And I, I guess it's, it's a little bit similar to just fueling in general, you know, like, do you need to eat before a workout? Well, it kind of depends on you, you know, like I really like to have a little bit of food in my system. Fasted workouts don't work well for me. Like I'm kind of a type A wound tight person and the stress that comes about from some time restricted eating is more than enough for me as a baseline. I don't need to compound that with stress of fasting and exercise. Like it, it just doesn't work out for me. Some people do great with it. So I think that this is just an area that you really need to to tinker and experiment. And then on that, like, should you do a bolus versus, you know, like a low titration? It's it's going to really depend. Like I, again, maybe using my lunch example of like some some lunch meat, I usually end up being able to work out 
if I'm, I'm hitting more of like a gym session, say around like four o'clock. So I will do my lunch around noon to 1230. And because it's, it's more like salami and cheese and all that type of stuff, I just sip on water after that. But that's kind of my big sodium bolus early. And then I sip on water to kind of bring things back to equilibrium. And then I'm pretty good to go by the time I get ready to work out. And I usually do bring another element with me. And if I feel like I'm, I'm kind of running out of gas and need a little bit of a boost, then I'll sip on it. Or oftentimes I, I feel like I'm pretty good because I, I did have that pretty significant bolus earlier in the day. All that stuff said, if we consume more sodium than what we need, the kidneys are pretty good at sorting that out. And it's about 25, 30 minutes before you get back to kind of a, a normal baseline with that. Yeah, I'm so glad you went that direction with the working out because we got quite a few questions about that. Chantel wanted to know if you work out daily, but you don't sweat very much, should I still take them? Candice says she works out in the mornings, mainly weights and drinks about 96 ounces of water a day. How do you know if you need to drink electrolytes? Is it mainly for people who sweat a lot and are outside? What are the benefits for the average person? And then Ashley wants to know as well, do most casual gym goers actually need to drink an electrolyte drink after a workout or is water sufficient? So it sounds like people are very curious if they're working out, like is their level of sweat a gauge for if they need more electrolytes? How would they know? It's a piece of this. And we, uh, maybe a way to think about it is like a, a bathtub that's getting filled. So if we turn the water into a bathtub, the bathtub's going to fill up unless the the drain is open and then we're losing some amount of water right and so if the inflow is greater than the outflow then we're we're okay or maybe it's at a at a, a stable state where the the same amount going in is coming out so that's going to be really the, this whole picture is going to be really dependent on how much sodium are these folks consuming as part of their just diet you know, their, their background food intake and, you know, whatever other supplements and, and whatnot they're, they're taking in. And, and generally when folks are eating anything approximating like a minimally processed whole food type diet, and this could be paleo, this could be vegan, it could be Mediterranean, but the bulk of the sodium that people consume in, in the you know, modern world is associated with highly processed foods. And so when people move away from highly processed foods, they tend to consume markedly less sodium. So it's, it's going to depend on, you know, whether or not it, it so would, again, like somebody, we, we threw out element as a stopgap. So here's maybe something that'll help the way that we formulated element, the way that we kind of arrived at the amounts and ratios, we looked at about 300 diet records that folks were doing on chronometer and they were very detailed the protein carbs fat but also the amount of sodium potassium magnesium calcium and what we found was that people eating a minimally processed lower carb whole food based diet they were fine on calcium they were a little bit deficient in magnesium more deficient in potassium and they were really 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 deficient in sodium and that's kind of reflected in the ratios that we have so if folks are eating, let's say they, they, their family is, you know, uh, kind of more Japanese or Asian in derivation, and they do a lot of soy sauce and, and kimchi and stuff like that, as a background, they are consuming a lot of sodium. And so they might not need to supplement with something like 
element or a, a different electrolyte. But if somebody is doing kind of a more traditional like Mediterranean diet with lentils and beans and, you know, some fruits and veggies, usually the sodium there is very much a garnish. Like there's not much present. And that individual may end up benefiting tremendously from additional sodium intake. And the the main you know, feedback that I have for folks on this is try supplementing, you know, around workouts or around walking or like if you have a a low energy portion of your day, you know, usually like that 2 to 4 p.m., something like that. Try supplementing with some electrolytes at that time. And again, it could be like 10 olives. It could be a swig of pickle juice. It could be element like there's a lot of different options on there. But I would look at those those spots and just see, like, do you notice a difference in your recovery, in your energy level? Do you see an improvement in your sleep quality? If people are, are tracking heart rate variability, one of the biggest things that we see is a, a dramatic increase in HRV score, which shows that the individual is recovering better and sleeping better when they get their, their sodium properly addressed. And that might actually be one of the better objective measures of, of whether or not that electrolyte is, is really benefiting you, you know, like feeling better is, I, I think a pretty profound tool in that whole thing. But when your HRV score consistently improves, then that's a pretty good indicator that, that things are on point. Yeah. We were talking earlier about how it's hard to gauge sometimes what things are actually doing, like vitamins and things like that. And do you wear aura ring or how do you measure your heart rate variability? I did for a long time, but I, I got frustrated with it because I would lay down and start reading to go to bed and then it would ding me because it thought that it, I had sleep latency. Think you were going to bed? Yeah. And so then I, I would get a lesser score. So then I started taking the ring off while I read and then put it back on. And really, I had reached this point where I think that platforms like that are really, really valuable to provide some guidance. But I, I find that for a lot of people, it, it's good. It, it became frustrating to me because I started doing goofy things to try to just improve a somewhat arbitrary score. I think our heart rate variability is very, very important. It's a very valuable tool. But this is some of where the biohacking stuff kind of raises my my hackles a little bit where I people lose touch with just what their body is telling them. It's like, do you sleep better? Did you wake up more refreshed? And it doesn't really matter what, it, you know, when you've got that across like 15 days, 20 days, 100 days, and it, it, but, you, you know, but I'm still getting dinged because these platforms are still, you know, far from perfect. They get better all the time. So I ended up kind of abandoning my aura ring. I use the Morpheus platform occasionally around my jujitsu training and in particular when I do any type of zone two cardio because it's remarkable how little effort you need to put into getting into zone two for for that really restorative cardiovascular training. So I will use it for that more gauging my heart rate at that time so that I don't overdo it and start turning it into a stressful session instead of a restorative session. If I ever really did get into the working out... <laughs> Like stuff, I, sh I would probably want to do that whole, um, the zone, like figure out what zone I'm in. I haven't done that at all. And it took me forever to get an aura ring because I thought it was going to make me super neurotic. But I actually have, I think, a very healthy relationship with my aura ring <laughs> when I first got it. And I realized it was recommending that I go to bed at 1.30 a.m. I was like, okay, we're fine. Like it knows me. <laughs> it knows I'm not going to go to bed earlier. <laughs> 
question about the workouts though. So when they are um, taking supplements, what would be the timing of it? So Dory wants to know before, during, or after a workout. Lydia wants to know before or after a run. And Abby wants to know timing with a workout. Does it coincide at all with your workout? Yeah, it it certainly can. And there's a, a couple of different ways that one could tackle this. And for let's say the little bit more sophisticated and performance oriented people, there's a little bit of a hack that you can do. You have to get the timing right, but let's say you you do you do your stick pack in 32 ounces, and then let's say you down about half of that pretty quick, like you you chug it. And you, it, again, this will vary from person to person. Like a five foot two female, that amount may need to be less because she's just going to be like sloshing around with a belly full of of electrolyte mix, you know. So it's going to vary a little bit there, but. There's an interesting phenomenon that occurs when we begin exercising, our urine output drops dramatically. And this is this makes sense because the body is, is kind of like, oh, we're beginning to heat up. We're going to start sweating. We need temperature regulation. We don't need to get fluids out of the body. We don't need to get sodium out of the body via the urine. We're going to handle that via the sweat and we want to allocate it to the sweat. So you can kind of stack the deck a little bit if you know the timing of what's going on, because then you enter into that that situation with a little bit more fluid volume than what you would normally have. Like it's almost like you 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 threw it down the hatch and where normally like if you drank a lot of fluids, like 20 minutes later, you would need to pee. You throw it down the hatch, maybe 10 minutes later, you start exercising and you do your warm up. You know, you don't just launch into like a... A, a full-fledged like crazy CrossFit workout, like you need a little bit of ramp up. But what you end up doing in that situation is kind of trapping some of that water between your mouth and your your kidneys, basically. And it's going to be allocated into allowing you to sweat more and maintain that fluid volume for proper cardiac output and and whatnot. But you need to tinker with that. You have to figure out the timing. Otherwise, you could shoot this stuff down and maybe have a belly ache. You could shoot this stuff down. And then it takes a little longer to get the workout going than what you thought. And then you need to pee every five minutes to, to deal with that. So, but, but that's kind of a higher level, like, like trick that folks could do to, to maybe get a little bit of performance bump. I, I do very much that at jujitsu. So I sip on an electrolyte. Usually when we're driving to the gym, I sip maybe about a third of a 32 ounce container on a 20 minute drive to the gym. And then the one hour of technique stuff, it, it's active, but it's not super active. And maybe every five, 10 minutes, we'll have a little bit of a water break and, and sip on some water. Right before I begin rolling, I will drink probably about 15 to 20 ounces of, of electrolyte. And then I immediately turn around and, and start getting after the hard rolling then. And so I end up doing both. I'm, I'm titrating a little bit of electrolytes early in. And then I end up kind of hyperloading right before the harder training session. And then at the end of that, if I have a really hard training day, I will notice that I may do two, three, four more elements in that day or, or just, you know, sodium equivalents. And I kind of gauge my relative fatigue as to whether or not I need more. Like if I still feel knackered and kind of, you know, like cognitively out of it then I'll keep on sipping on some more. So 
that's a, a maybe an example that encompasses all of these questions where I use a little bit pre, I use a little bit during, and then as the intensity changes, I actually preload a little bit so that it's going to carry me through the, the remainder of that hour of heart training. Within the element community, within the keto gains community, with all the people experimenting with taking these electrolytes to boost their performance, do some people just go completely intuitive? Do some people really like plan it out? What do most people do? Like how, how intense do people need to be with tracking this compared to just being intuitive? I really do think that most folks, they need a game plan. But then at the end of the day, it, it does kind of fall down to a bit of an intuitive level. You know, uh, a habituated schedule lends itself to figuring this out much better than like a super randomized schedule. Like if you don't know when you're going to be able to exercise, then you don't really have an opportunity to preload and, you know, tinker with with those elements. So it it really is, you know, kind of paying attention to how you're feeling and that brain fog and fatigue. And, and, you know, it's something that historically I've attributed to blood sugar imbalance. Like I thought that, that these like energy slumps were low blood sugar or what have you. And when I did some work with a CGM, that really wasn't the case. Yeah. <laughs> this is CGM is like so eye-opening. It's like, oh, okay. That's not what I thought that was. <laughs> Yeah, because we, you know, it'd be great if every problem was blood sugar related. And certainly there's a lot of them that are, but it, that wasn't it. You know, it, 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 I, I felt okay and then I didn't feel okay. And the blood sugar was effectively the, the same, both of those points. But then I started layering in some, some electrolytes with it. It's like, oh, this is what I needed. And again, it pains me because being able to provide a really prescriptive dosing regimen would be wonderful. And And we've talked about you know, some kind of AI driven elements with that. I was going to say make an app or something. Yeah. But you know, how are, are you male or female? So like females sweat in a bit of a different way than males do. Females sweat tends to be uh, much smaller in like the droplet size and it's much more efficient. Like uh, women are much more efficient at thermoregulating than men are. Men tend to be more in what, what we call the super sweater category, where it's just beads of sweat that, that kind of pour off of guys. And so men tend to lose more sweat, more sodium relative to, you know, if we had a male and a female, 155 pounds each, all other things being equal, there's a pretty good chance that the, you know, genetic male is, is going to lose more water and more sodium at any given work output and heat and humidity and all that type of stuff. So there's genetic pieces, there are environmental pieces, altitude plays into this. Like people at high altitude tend to lose more water and require more electrolytes. But then you've got the flip side of that. Usually when one is at altitude, it's also colder. And when we're colder, we tend to have a suppressed thirst mechanism. So then, he, so it, it, you know, it, it's one of these things where we are going to put some, some thought and some skull sweat into creating kind of an algorithmic, you know, dosing regimen, but I'm not optimistic. Like there's a lot of moving parts on there. And I, I, you know, I don't know if it's going to be anything closer than like, we'll just get in and tinker with it. You know, I mean, if we have a 50% error rate in our recommendation, I don't know if it's really helping people all that much, you know, and there's so many different spots there that I could see error introduced into this. If you had, you know, 
unlimited time and resources and really could dive deep into it. Does the salt concentration of a person's sweat indicate things? Like if you could like test all the things to see what your perfect number is or perfect amount. Hmm. Because, you know, sweat can be like more salty or less salty. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I mean, there, there are genetic factors there. There's environmental factors. Some of the genetic factors are are these folks that are super sweaters tend to produce more sweat and it tends to be saltier sweat. So hmm, I'm not sure like it, it. I see it a little bit more like an accounting ledger, you know, where you've got maybe the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And we need to make sure that the books balance by kind of the end of the day or like they maybe don't balance for two days, but we need to make sure that they balance on days three, four and five or something like that. Like this is where it's such a dynamic, open system that it's funny being a biochemist. I'm actually one of the more cynical, critical people of of this kind of quantified self movement because we can be buried in information and it's kind of like okay how is it going to inform it doing anything differently like is it going to qualitatively cause you to do anything differently and and if it does how are you going to gauge that as a beneficial or or negative metric you know relative to i love things like performance output like if you lift weights or you run or or what have you like a little bit of heart rate let's say you're the, the individual is a runner And they know that they can run a certain course at a certain pace and they have an average, a a given average heart rate. Now, if we do some breath work and we do some like diaphragm development and we get our electrolytes on point, a goal could be to run, let's say a mile or two miles and you do it as fast as what you've done in the past, but you do it at a heart rate that is five to eight beats per minute less. And then you could get in and say, okay, now I'm going to run it faster, but I'm only going to keep my heart rate at the rate that it was previously. So now you're running the same distance, maybe a couple of minutes faster, but it's still at your old max heart rate. So things like that, I really enjoy because it's a really hard endpoint. If one lifts weights or they do calisthenics, like if you go in and you can bust out 10 really nice pull-ups, and and then you do some neurosynaptic facilitation, you know, some some Russian strength magic or whatever, and you go back out there and you have 15 pull-ups in, in a couple of months. That's a really solid endpoint. Whereas so much of this other stuff, I I'm just left wondering, like, what is this really telling us? What's it really doing for us? So I really do like performance metrics and you you know this could be like is it facilitating you learning a language and you have some you know you're using duolingo and you're you know you're 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 rocking all the quizzes or like you're using musician or something like that which helps people to learn musical instruments there are some really quantifiable endpoints there that i think are valuable but a lot of this stuff of like taking a snapshot of what my sweat status is mid workout it's possibly interesting data, but I'm not entirely sure what I would do with that. Like maybe over the course of time, it might help to inform, you know, what my hydration strategy is and maybe even some of my fueling strategy. But I, I think that there are, are less invasive ways of getting there. But again, like I'm, I'm kind of a Luddite with that. Like I'm literally a caveman with this stuff. So I'm, 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 uh, 
I, I've, I've just seen so many, you know, like screening the gut microbiome, like there was all this promise around that. And we know the gut microbiome is important. We know gut health is important. And in my opinion, that's l- literally all that we know. When we really critically assess, well, is Ackermansia really good for you? Well, some people, it seems to be great. And other people that are super healthy have none. Some people have this really profound profile of a bifidobacter bacteria, and, and they seem to do a lot of fermented foods. But then you have cultures that don't really do that many fermented foods, and they have wonderful gut health, and they don't have any of these bifidobacter bacteria, you know? And, and so a, a lot of this deep information-driven diving, I, I'm still waiting for like a, a, a better outcome that it's going to provide us versus like picking a performance-oriented benchmark and, and then structuring our life around improving that. I cannot agree more. I think one of the most dangerous things I see is just people drawing these black and white conclusions about so many things, health and fitness from all of this information that we have. But I'm like, do you really know that? I'm not sure. <laughs> and, like, and like people will ask questions in my Facebook group and talk amongst themselves all the time about they took this supplement and then it caused this. And, I, and I'm just like, I don't know how we know that. <laughs> so I think it can be a little bit dangerous. So here's two really good questions speaking about the intuition when it comes to drinking element. This is basically the same question, but we have two listeners that are a little bit they upset they're a little bit obsessed with element and they want to know if they can overdo it. So Angelo says, first he says, what's in it that gives me so much energy? So maybe we can circle back to that. But he says, I need to be well hydrated in order to play tennis. So is it safe to drink more than one package per day? I have a feeling I'm overdoing it. All I want is to drink this magical concoction. And then Robin says, love the podcast. I found out about Element through this podcast and ordered my free package. I love the taste and the different flavors so much that I ordered more. It's the only electrolytes I can drink. Any others are too sweet, too yucky, and just horrible that I gag. My question is, can I safely drink Element other times when I'm not sweating or exercising and not needing to replace my electrolytes? I like to drink at least one envelope per day on the days I'm not working out as I enjoy the taste so much. My family members are worried I am taking in too much salt. I do have AFib and this causes them to worry about my health. Thank you so much for such good information you give the audience. So if people really, really like drinking Element, can they drink too much of it? Generally, consuming too much means that we're going to get loose stools, like the the disaster pants scenario. Like that really is kind of the the first spot that I I notice people experiencing some problems. The other spot that and this is there's a little bit of science on this, but this is way more speculative, and I want to be totally transparent about that. Like there are not randomized control trials. There's a little bit of of like neuroregulation of appetite research and and some some things that support this but if the sodium is in kind of an isotonic to hypotonic solution it's not super concentrated if people need more you know particularly with like an element scenario where there's a, an overlying sweet flavor they will taste sweet and then if they hit a point where they don't really need more sodium they're kind of topped off all of a sudden they'll notice that it starts tasting saltier and really less appealing and I, I think that that's a pretty good benchmark to use in in this case. There are some things like the zinc tally test and, and whatnot, where they will use a aqueous solution of zinc. And people who are deficient in zinc, they'll they'll put 
the zinc tally solution under their tongue and they'll, they'll, it doesn't taste like anything. They'll do it again. They maybe do it three or four times. And then like the fifth time they do the zinc tally and it tastes like they're sucking on a Chrome bumper. And then ostensibly like their body is saturated with zinc. Again, there aren't great, there's no studies on this stuff. Like nobody has done a randomized control trial. So it's a little bit out into the, the woo woo realm, but it makes sense. And like, I've just had this report from firefighters and, and, you know, hockey players, so many people where they're like, yeah, I'll be, when I'm really working hard, I never am able to reach a point where it does, where it starts to taste salty. Like it always tastes sweet. But then if they're in a situation, say like they're, they're driving cross country and they're just like, you know, sedentary and they're not doing a whole lot, they'll be sipping on it. And then they just reach a point where they're like, eh, that doesn't taste so great anymore. And then they just don't drink any for, for several hours. So I, I think maybe that addresses some of that, that like dosing and relative per perception thing. Angelo's question on the energy, I really think that this goes back to the sodium potassium pump story. And something I need to do is, is pull up. There are, are great, you know, like Khan Academy and whatnot, but a 30 second video that describes the way the energy is produced via the ATP production, sodium potassium pumps would really help people understand this. Like if you're deficient in sodium in particular, it, and then you fix that, then you are going to feel better. Like it, it's kind of funny. Like we, I don't know if we are going to run with this angle, but we, we are kind of internally saying that currently we are the only real energy drink out there because sodium potassium is the currency of energy you know so caffeine is great like caffeine's a, a great tool but interestingly part of what it's doing is goosing the adrenals and the release of adrenal hormones one of the first things that they do is cause a retention of sodium so some of the benefit that we get from it and they are also diuretic also so there's push pull on that but one of the kind of interesting features is that we get an enhanced sodium retention it, with with like caffeine exposure. So uh, some of the bump that I think that we we get from caffeine, in addition to you know be, it being legitimately a stimulant, is that we're getting some sodium retention out of that. But I, I think that that is probably what Angelo's experiencing. You know, you end up in this kind of low sodium ebb, and you're feeling kind of tired and lethargic, and then you address that. And you feel much, much better. So does something like Gatorade, does it have potassium in it? It, it has a little bit of potassium. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a, a sodium and a little bit of potassium. And it, it's maybe worth mentioning, we had a, a client that went to the Gatorade Hall of Fame and and saw one of the very first packages of, you know, that Gatorade came in. And it used to have a, a gram of sodium per serving. And, and then over the course of time, it's gotten much less powered in, in sodium, much higher powered in, in sugar. This might have answered Melissa's question, which when I first read her question, it never occurred to me what the answer might be. But based on what you just said, I'm wondering if this might be the answer. She said, I have tried so hard to drink the raw unflavored element packet in my water and I can't get beyond the salty taste. I've even tried half a packet at a time. Is this a taste you grow accustomed to over time? I know I would benefit from the electrolytes during my fast, but I'm really struggling. So would that be something where her body is just saying she doesn't need that amount of salt? It could be, or she may be legitimately more, more sensitive to that, that sodium taste. Like I would still, you know, try doing, you know, at least 32 ounces for 
for that dilution. And I, I would also, you know, I, I know folks get a little bit, this is a value judgment here. So I, this is Rob's opinion, you know, corner real quick. But I, I think people get a little bit neurotic on how fastidious they are with their fasts. So they'll look at, at the, the flavored version and they see some stevia and they're like, oh my God, I can't do stevia because it elevates insulin levels. One thing with that is it elevates insulin levels in some people, not all. Even if it does elevate insulin levels, it's super transient and it is it is remarkably small. Like this is possibly problematic when we're in a situation where folks are eating a mixed diet and this sweet beverage is going to cause people to, you know, spin out and and make kind of dodgy food choices. But something to keep in mind too is even if we get a little bump in insulin while we're fasting, what is that ultimately going to do? It's going to lower blood sugar levels. It, it, on the back end of that and elevate ketone levels. So, you know, it, it net net, I just don't see where, where that's all that concerning. People will see that it's got a couple of calorie calories in there because there's a little bit of malic acid and citric acid fasting and like autophagy and, and all the associated benefits of fasting. It's not an on or off switch. It, it's more of like a dimmer switch. And if we're going from consuming normally 2,000, 2,500 calories a day, and then you use an electrolyte product that, that facilitates you sticking to your fast for multiple days, and you're consuming like 10 calories a day as a consequence, that is not a loss, particularly when overlaid with, well, you, you, you know, you're not mentally able to continue because you feel like such garbage, you know? So I, I just said, I did a, a talk. And this is something, Melanie, if you reach back out to me, I have a talk that I'd be willing to give to you and you could share it with your community. It's called Longevity Are We Trying Too Hard? And I, I re- released it right at the beginning of 2020 and then COVID hit and all the speaking gigs dried up. And so this thing has just been kind of sitting pretty much in, in darkness. But I really take a pretty critical look at the way that folks are looking at, at, at fasting and intermittent fasting and that I think that folks are really overcomplicating this stuff. You know, it, Walter Longo's work, the fasting mimicking diet, like they're still eating like 500 to 700 calories a day and they show virtually all the benefits that we get from 100% fast. And people recognize that and they kind of acknowledge that, but then they get really, you know, twisted around when they they notice that there's some stevia or, you know, a, a nominal amount of like citric acid or malic acid in, in a product like Element. So one thing for this person, I would definitely make sure to do the 32 ounces. And then the other thing is try one of the flavored versions. You know, it may really make that much easier. And if the if the fasting protocol is super important, I wouldn't sweat the, you know, the 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 little bit of stevia, the little bit of malic acid that's in there in the bigger context of of garnering the benefits from the fast. Perfect timing that you said that. I actually, the episode coming out this week on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast is with Walter Longo. We've had him on this show and then I had him back on the other show. I love talking with him. We get a lot of questions though. He has a messaging about anti-fasting because of the gallbladder, which is a whole rabbit hole tangent. So yeah, as far as I'm actually more closer in line with you on your thoughts with all of this. Cause my co-host Jen is like her 
thing is the the clean fast. And so, you know, just water, just coffee. I think that does work really well for a lot of people, especially if people have been haven't tried that and they've been like struggling. And a lot of people do find when they do cut out the sweeteners that when they go to that approach, it really helps. I know for me, when I started fasting, I actually used stevia and a lot of things like that. And I was fine. So listeners, I'm not undoing everything I've said. I will say that I am definitely more open to the um, possibility that for some people, it's not going to be as much of a problem. Yeah. Like Elaine said, does it break the fast? Will the stevia in it stimulate an insulin response and make me want more? Becky wanted to know if it's clean, fast-friendly electrolytes. Are they necessary for fasting? Well, that was actually a separate question. But um, (laughs) so to clarify for listeners, the clean, fast-approved element version, especially with Gin Stevens, is the raw, unflavored. But the other ones, they don't have sugar. They are sweetened with stevia. And so it might be that they might work for you, I will say. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's this great thing of just tinker and, and see, I I will say like the central backbone of this whole story is this process called the nature rhesus of fasting, the loss of sodium due to fasting. And so this is something that was cataloged, uh, I think more than a hundred years ago. And it's super well understood that people lose prodigious amounts of water and sodium while fasting in particular, and also ketogenic diets, but you know, those are lesser magnitude. And I'm, I'm of the opinion that if you're going to stretch this out much beyond a day, that it is going to be really sufferville if you're not topping off electrolytes in that, that process. Like it's a, some people are really mentally tough. They can do it. But I I think for, for folks that are, you you know, just not into the headaches and the, the lethargy and the super low energy and all that stuff, like topping off electrolytes by hook or by crook somewhere in this thing is going to really improve the the ability to stick with that fast over the, the duration that you want to do it. So to clarify, it would be the fast longer than 24 hours where that's really going to become an issue? I think it's going to become really important at the, at the longer point. Yeah. Okay. Chris Master John had... I don't know if it was one of his podcasts or if it was just like a Q&A, but he had a really good conversation about when are you actually fasted. And it was sort of like what you were just saying about you know something being a dimmer switch. And I'll have to find a link and put a link to it in the show notes because it made me think, it was like, oh, like how do you even really quantify what is fasting? Especially because you know there's just the nature of like the timeline of food in us and what different fuels we're using. And he was making the point that you could be fasted, but you could be running on, you know, glucose. And so what does that mean? And I I thought it was a really good, you know, nuanced perspective. I also wanted to ask, so that longevity talk that you did, because I remember leading up to it, you talking about it a lot on your show. And then, so did you have it? I did it once at the Metabolic Health Summit. Yeah, yeah. I want to watch it. So a question to clarify about the diet, because you were talking about the keto. So Stephanie says, how much sodium should you consume if you are low carb or keto versus not low carb? And then Joel wants to know what's a good dose to take of element while one is on keto and does it matter about male versus female? So in general, is it like a massively bigger requirement if you're keto compared to not keto? Do some people not even need electrolytes if they're not keto. Again, it's going to depend a little bit on what. It, so when we're talking about electrolytes, we we are talking about 
all of the food we consume and then potentially something supplemental like element. So I love soups. Like I, I make soups all the time. I make soup for breakfast sometime and I'll add a significant amount of sodium or even like a, a, a bouillon cube to that. So in that situation, like I'm good. I, I ticked my, my box for that. It, it, it really depends again, like how large or small is the person? What's their physical activity level in general? It, this is worth mentioning. This is kind of the way that we, we bracket things with element on like our, our science pages. There's some good research that suggests that all cause mortality is lowest at about five grams of sodium intake per day for like a general population which is about double what the USDA and the, the AMA and whatnot recommend. They recommend less than two grams per day. But it's worth mentioning that, you know, some cultures like the Japanese and Okinawans consistently consume 10 to 11 grams of sodium per day, and they don't have dramatically higher rates of cardiovascular disease. They have less. And this is usually the, the main concern in all those stories. And generally, most of the cardiovascular risk in all this is due to chronically elevated insulin levels. And, you know, low-carb diets and fasting are great ways to address that. They're not the only tools in the shed, but they're good ways to address that. So, like, five grams per day from all dietary sources seems like a safe beginning place for most people to play with. And if somebody's on a ketogenic diet, I, I just can't imagine them feeling or doing well at anything much below that. Like, it's going to be really hard to make things work. If, if somebody is put on a medically supervised ketogenic diet, the dietitian will make sure to prescribe at least five grams of sodium per day. So that's kind of a low end bound. We look over it like some very mainstream American Council of Sports Medicine recommendations for more vigorous activity. And even the ACSM, which is, is in this very high carb, you know, centric camp, they recommend seven to 10 grams of sodium per day for athletes training in, in heat or humidity. And we've definitely seen that reflected within our, our populations. You know, a small female CrossFit Games competitor, she's doing 12 grams of sodium per day. Again, from all sources, it doesn't mean they're doing 12 stick packs of element. You know, they're, they're eating a salami and, and salting their food and getting all, all different sources in here. So I would say somewhere between that like five and 10 grams of sodium per day is going to address virtually every person's needs, especially if they're in more of that, that low carb side of things. And again, can't emphasize it enough, not saying you do five or 10 stick packs of element a day. If you do, that's fine. You know, it's, you know, whatever, whatever, it, you know, makes things best for you, but I get more than half of my daily sodium needs from just dietary background, not from stick packs of element. What is the role, you touched on this earlier, but the role of carbs with the need for that? Like I've noticed for me, what's interesting is because I oscillate between either low fat or low carb. And if I'm low carb, I will feel the need for more electrolytes. But if I'm low fat and doing higher carb, I don't feel that need as much, but I'm not adding any sodium through the carbs because it's just fruit. <laughs> so. Yep. But your, your body is retaining more of the sodium because of the, the greater insulin load. Insulin goes up, aldosterone goes up, and then your body will be more effective at retaining sodium. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. 
just real quick that in that low carb state, your body is really primed to offload sodium. Like it is actively offloading sodium. So you have to get out ahead of that even more aggressively. That makes sense. This is a question we get about element. Stephanie says, I've heard bad things about quote, natural flavors. Given it's an element ingredient, what are your thoughts on natural flavors and should we avoid them? And then Mary Ann said, where are the natural flavors derived from? Yeah, it, it varies a bit. So like, let's take watermelon for an example. Watermelon is in the same family as cucumbers. And if you really close your eyes when you drink a little bit of the watermelon, and if we were to tell people, hey, this is cucumber, and you start sipping on the watermelon, it'll taste like cucumber. And it's because there are the same natural compounds that exist in both of these plants. So what you end up, and, and you know, I went into this thing, uh, uh, oftentimes people will say, oh, you guys are being nefarious. And it's like, no, there's just limitate, like there's matter and energy and physics and chemistry, and there's just certain constraints on this stuff. And, and so we have a flavor profile that has a, a certain assortment of chemicals that you could find in either watermelon or cucumber. And cucumbers have some other things that aren't in watermelon, but they both, if there were two Venn diagrams of watermelon and, and cucumber and the chemicals that make up their flavor profile, there's a ton of similarity, but there's also some, some differences. So in these natural sourcing stories or natural flavor stories, like if it's a citrus flavor, sometimes that comes from lemon. Sometimes that comes from lime. Sometimes that might come from grapefruit or something like that. So it really depends what we're what we're catering to though is that this is a non-synthetic source of the flavor constituents and it is derived from oftentimes a variety of different food sources but it if we were to run it through this thing called HPLC or a gas chromatograph where where we separate out every single chemical constituent in there then we would see little graphic peaks that indicate, oh, this is D-limonene and this is this one and, you know, this is cinnamonaldehyde. And so that is where these natural flavors come from. And I, I wish that there were supernatural flavors, but there's not. We, we haven't found super, you know, flavors from another, another dimension. And the other alternative is synthetic flavors, which honestly, as a chemist, whether at the end of the day, whether they, they came out of a, a lab beaker or, or you know, the, the chemical factories within a, a lime peel, they, it, it does end up being the same molecule at the end of the day. But, you know, the, the natural flavor sourcing provides this really rich kind of bouquet of, of flavor and smell. And that's the reason why we go with that. And the reason why it's not more specific is the exact sourcing varies from batch to batch. Like they might use... Again, for watermelon, there might be a little bit more sourcing out of cucumbers this time versus watermelon because they're they're trying to hit a certain flavor profile with that. So we're really not trying to be nefarious. And as always, the reason why we we did the raw and flavored, we knew no matter how perfectly we tried to put together the flavored versions, for somebody, it, it, it's not going to you know spin their propeller. They're going to have objections with either the stevia or the natural flavors or whatever. And that's where the raw unflavored is. And then even a layer beyond that, we still have our free keto aid formula where you use this much table salt, this much no salt, this much magnesium citrate or magnesium malate. And then you flavor it or don't flavor it exactly the way you want. Just make sure that you get your, your electrolytes addressed. I will say, speaking to the nefariousness today, I just right before this signed 
the final forms because I'm creating my own supplement. But I have learned so much about labeling and what, <laughs> like, what you can say and what things mean, and it's just a whole world. So, um, I bet you probably learned a lot creating this about the whole supplement creation. <laughs> We really did, you know, and and we thought it was going to be a, a simpler process than what it was. And we've been a, as transparent with things as we can. And I mean, we we still have a money back guarantee deal. Like you you buy it, you don't like it, we'll refund your money, we'll send you a different box. You know, I mean, we're we'll bend over backwards to accommodate people, but also folks, you know always make the decision that is best for you given you know your risk tolerances or your goals and all that type of stuff but i do also think a lot of this if it gets filed under the uh, majoring in the minors people with really significant health concerns like they have some gut issues and stuff like that i get it like you know i'm i'm celiac so i i definitely can't tolerate any type of gluten exposure and stuff like that and there are people with some complex health issues that knowing the exact details of like natural flavors, like they might be really reactive to nightshades or something like they would like to to know whether or not that is a, a constituent in there. And and so I, I do acknowledge that. But I think for a lot of people, like they could, again, they could probably simplify this stuff and not worry so much about those, those exacting details all the time. I will say, since you mentioned the grapefruit, we did have a, just a little testimonial and request from Margaret. She says, please ask him to bring back the grapefruit flavor permanently and tell him thanks for the awesome product. They helped me fast and have helped relieve muscle cramps. My husband takes them to the golf course and also gives them to his friends when playing golf. They've kept him from getting dizzy and dehydrated all summer. People are amazed at how they feel so much better in only about 15 minutes after drinking these. Element is one of my favorite things ever, exclamation point. So <laughs> is the grapefruit flavor coming back by chance? It's coming back, but I do think it's going to remain a seasonal option. So I don't know that it's going to become a, a permanent feature in the lineup. I think it's going to remain seasonal, similar to what we are launching in November with our, our fall flavor. When it's here, folks need to jump on it. So <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, I think we got, yeah, most of the stuff. We did have a question about saunas. Like Joan said, do you need to take electrolytes when using a sauna? And Brian said, if you take an infrared sauna daily, should you supplement them each time? Would that also be an intuitive thing? Kind of like the working out? Yeah. It, you know, so when people say need, do you need to do this? I don't need to. But I think that your sauna experience is going to be a lot better if you are properly hydrated and have adequate electrolyte levels. And, you know, you don't need to run with good fitting shoes, appropriate, you know, gear for the weather and all that stuff. Like if, it, you know, it's 32 degrees outside right now. So I could go barefoot running in a pair of like Navy SEAL short shorts and and go do it, but it's going to be terrible. You know, like my feet are going to be cold. Everything else is going to be cold. The the drizzle is going to make it miserable, but I didn't need to do that. But even a pair of like Vibram, you know, barefoots and some, some mittens on my hands and a beanie on my head would make that whole thing way more enjoyable. And I would actually get more out of the training experience because I, I would probably be able to, to stay in and do the whole thing. The, the deal with sauna, like oftentimes I, I don't think folks are even fully aware of why they're doing something like what is the benefit of sauna? And I really see it being 
two pronged. The first prong is the the cardiovascular fitness that people obtain from that elevated heart rate while while experiencing that heat stress, and it, it's a non trivial thing. Like people can maintain a good cardiopulmonary function by just doing sauna and wrestlers and some other, you know, weight category athletes will curtail their physical activity and rely on sauna to, to maintain some cardiovascular fitness while, you know, weight cutting and doing some different things like that. So, but to get the benefit, you need to be in the sauna about 20, 25 minutes at a, at a minimum. And if you can't motor through that long without electrolytes, then that's a problem. You're not really getting a benefit. These benefits around heat shock proteins and the the kind of anti-aging effects that people get from that. It's a dose response curve. The longer you stay in, the better the kind of response there is. And if you start experiencing really severe heat stress because your body's out of water, your body's out of sodium, then you're not going to stay in there as long as what you would have done otherwise. The goal, you know, why is one doing this on it? Well, there are these these benefits. Well, the better you can optimize your performance doing that, the more benefit you're going to get from it. So I, I get nervous about like, the, do I need this? I don't know if you need it, but if you want to garner the most benefits from it, you you take more appropriate steps and proper hydration is is part and parcel to that. I see it a little bit like, do you do people need to eat adequate protein when strength training? Now you don't need to, but you're going to get really lackluster results. You know, if you're eating like 30 grams of protein a, a day and you're strength training, it, it's better that you're strength training than not, but you're certainly not going to get the benefit of eating 100, 120 grams of protein a day, you know? So the need question, I think, is a there's a better question to be asked behind that. Like, what is the benefit here? And I, th- that would be something that I would throw out to folks instead of asking, do I need this? Like, how do I optimize results? How do I... You know, if we were talking about money and finances, like how do I optimize my return on investment with this? Like if I could get a 3x return doing this, but a 10x return doing that, and there's no additional danger or downside, then clearly I would want that that 10x return. So I would really encourage people to couch these things, not so much in like, do I need this or do I need that? But how am I optimizing things? And what is my goal for even doing this? So often I see folks start fasting or doing sauna and it's like, well, why are it? And they'll ask a question around it and I'll say, well, what is your goal here? And I get like deer in the headlights look and they're like, I don't actually know why I'm doing this. You know, and it's like, well, that's a problem. You know, if we don't even know why you're doing it, then how do we gauge whether it's a good or bad thing? You know, other than maybe it's like, well, I'm just going to try out sauna and see what it feels like. Okay. That's cool. That's totally cool. But if we're getting in and getting more sophisticated about this, like we got to move beyond this, like Do I need this or do I need that? Like what's optimizing returns? I'm so glad you said all of that. Speaking to that. So I do an infrared sauna session pretty much every night. The reason I do it is the cardiovascular benefits for sure. The stress relief, it makes me feel so, so good. But then the third thing is like the detox and and the sweating. And this is the question I've actually had about salt intake and electrolytes and sauna because I was speaking earlier about how I can kind of tell how long it takes for me to offload, you know, a high salt intake day. And that's how I tell. I I was like, how do I tell? It's from the sauna. So like that night, the next night, and then like maybe the third night, I will sweat much more in the sauna. And then it kind of goes down. Do you know if there's a therapeutic benefit to sweating more in the sauna? I would say that there is just based around you're more likely to stay there longer. Okay. 
but if but if like the timing is the same, so your suffering is. I would guess that your suffering is probably less on these high sweat days. Like, have you ever noticed that? Like your perceived suffering. Do you do infrared sauna or do you do traditional heat sauna? I do both. I mainly a traditional hot sauna, and like the the place that we go to is like two hundred degrees, so it is no joke in there. Yeah. I have a sunlight and I have their solo unit where your head isn't even in it. So it's remarkably pleasant. Like I could stay in there for three hours. <laughs> I don't, but um, I'm not a good gauge for that. But if, if it were unpleasant, I could see how that would definitely be a factor. Yeah. You know, like this 200 degrees, if I'm not topped off on electrolytes, like I maybe make it 10 minutes and then I am in a panic to get out. Like if somebody is... On the other side of the door, I'm like, you better move because I'm, I'm, com- I'm coming out fast, you know? Whereas if I'm topped off on electrolytes, like 10 minutes, it starts getting uncomfortable, but I, I make it to 20 minutes and the perceived suffering, like my my relative perceived exertion or whatever, you know, if we're using like exercise terms, it, it's a lot less if I'm properly topped off on on electrolytes. And, you know, I'm not an expert on like I know that infrared in particular is is really powerful for inducing some of that like mitochondrial biogenesis and stimulating some of the detox through through the skin. But I'm I'm not well versed on like, you know, if you're I, I would assume that some of that is moving, you know, all the water soluble stuff is moving with the fluids. And so if you've got more fluid to offload, then you, you know, you're just potentially transporting more. Yeah. I mean, that was my thought that maybe like the the detox. I know people think that's like a woo-woo thing, but the the sweating detox aspect of it might be greater if you're sweating more. Yeah. I mean, the the detox associated with fasting is a no joke deal. I mean, like phthalates and, and uh, xenoestrogens and doesn't really address heavy metals, but all of these kind of fat and water soluble chemicals that we're, we're you know, inundated with in modern world, it, it's legit. They're Oh gosh, I'm I'm blinking on his name, but he's a Mayo Clinic researcher who's super sharp on this stuff. He wrote the book Estrogen Nation and Anthony J. Anthony J. He would be a great person for the podcast, but he's posted great research, good peer-reviewed stuff where they're actually like assaying the contents of the sweat and like you you're you're getting gunk out of there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I did a deep dive into the the sauna literature and I think it's very promising especially the cardiovascular health and all of that. One last electrolyte question. Is it okay for kids? Teresa says, are they okay for kids? Katie says, are they good for kids younger than 10? And then Amanda says she has teens who have been media hyped into thinking Gatorade is healthy. So is it good for them? Yeah, I, I think that it's it's great for kids. One of our big goals with Element is to upend this this childhood obesity story. And so much of that starts at the like, youth sports level where these kids, you know, youth soccer, you know, these five-year-old kids, they kind of run around for 30 minutes and then they've got like juice and Gatorade and it's like they barely did anything, you know, and they don't need their glycogen stores topped off yet yet again. What we do for our kids is I have a big 64-ounce pitcher and we're normally for myself, I do one stick pack per 32 ounces what the girls end up doing, it's, a, it's technically a 34-ounce container, but I'm able to get 80 ounces in it. I do two stick packs in there, and then I end up with 80 ounces of water. So it's it's like I was doing one stick pack and like 40 ounces. 
And I just keep that topped off and the girls completely self-regulate that. I don't monitor it at all. They, they either do water or, or that based off of what, what, what they want. And they seem to do great with it. And, you know, there's, there's certainly no need to, to add carbs at that point. Like if they were doing some sort of really hard physical activity, like a, a soccer tournament where they've got six games over the course of a weekend and each game is 90 minutes, then, then we're going to start talking some different stuff. But even then I would mainly try, try to address their energy needs via whole foods, not, not drinking liquid calories, you know, but yeah, it's totally, totally fine for kids. All I do is just dilute it a little bit more than what, what I do for myself. And I don't even know if that's necessary. Just the kids really enjoy it that way. Okay. Awesome. So listeners, moms, you can get it for the whole family. I just have three quick questions. They're not like super sciencey or intense like that, but they're about the regenerative agriculture. I was wondering if we could end with that because it's so important to me. (laughs) Sophia said, has Rob seen any change on the heels of publishing Sacred Cow? It seems that more people are interested in regenerative agriculture, but I am in that space. So it's hard to judge. And then similar to that, Sherry says, how far along are we with convincing farmers? Does he see regenerative farming becoming the norm in our lifetime, at least in Western society? So I was wondering after Sacred Cow and the documentary, which by the way, listeners, you have got to watch and read, have you seen any change specific to that? And also the future, do you see change happening? Are you optimistic? I'm still mixed. I have seen change happen. So like Diana Rogers just had an outreach from some industry folks actually and putting together a, a an institute for education around this stuff now industry backing these things is always dodgy because this study on milk brought to you by the dairy industry you know this study on corn brought to you by the corn industry there's always you know challenges with that but Nobody else cares enough to, to put any money into this, but there there is a lot more interest. There there is more pushback around the standard climate change narrative. You know that grazing animals are like the primary driver of climate change, which is one of these really common things out in the world. It's a tough thing to push back against, and I, I don't want to overly politicize this, but. We're in a weird spot now where even saying, hey, we need to have a nuanced discussion around climate change. All of a sudden that will go to, well, you deny climate change. So you're probably a Holocaust denier and you're certainly also a racist. Like it's just this like, like, how did I end up here? You know, so it's a it's a weird spot in the world to to be, you know, motoring through this stuff. But there there are definitely more and more folks. And interestingly, it's developing countries that are adopting this because developing countries are poised to be crushed by the diabetes epidemic. They are starting to wake up to the danger of having all or most of their food distributed to them from the industrial food complex, you know? And, and this is kind of... The flip side of this, there is massive money, absolutely ungodly amount of money that are going into like the fake meat, the lab grown meat. There are things that have come to light that two or three years ago I suspected were true, but it was super tinfoil hat stuff. And then I've actually seen like, you know, World Economic Forum documents on and it's like, holy shit, that's not a conspiracy theory. Like they're being honest about this stuff, you know, and 
you know, there's this goal that the consumption of, of red meat in particular would drop to the size of like uh, basically your thumb per week, you know, per person. Now on the heels of that, it's acknowledged like people in those same circles also say, if we do this, then obesity will increase because people are eating such a low protein diet that they're going to overeat everything else. And we're also going to have all these, you know, nutrient deficiencies. These very plant-based diets look indistinguishable from, from the problems that we see in developing countries where people just don't get enough food and in particular, not enough animal products. Low B vitamin status, low zinc, low iron, developmental difficulties, pregnancy issues and whatnot. But there's a, a mountain of money to be made from tying all of this story into climate change and social justice topics. And there's all super legitimate, compelling stuff in there. But it's also what's fascinating to me, Forbes actually had a great piece on this. And it said the kind of vegan backed fake meat story was so ironic because the only winner in that is is big food and big pharma. That's it. Those are the winners in this story. Like your decentralized local, you know, food production is is done with that. And and in many cases, there are are you know initiatives that are being put forward that would make like your ability to go get locally raised pastured meat illegal or difficult, or you know, tax it so that it becomes even more prohibitively expensive. And then who suffers from that? Poor people, ethnic minorities. You know, so the it, the, there's a lot of ironic kind of astroturfing and, and stuff like that, that that's happening in this stuff. So I'm, I'm optimistic on the one hand, but it's, it's going to be a really big lift. Like it's going to be a, a big lift. It's a complex topic to unpack. The process of unpacking it really quickly can get one labeled as some sort of like right-wing extremist. And, and most of the people doing regenerative ag are like, hippies from from the 60s and 70s that just really believed in like pure natural food <laughs> and you know there there is not right wing aligned as you could find someone but just because they they're like no I really think that you know here's this plot of land that we uh, you know and here's all the the desertified damage to the land 20 years ago and now look at this like verdant green oasis that we've produced by holistically managing these grazing animals and they have really solid outcome on that, but you become labeled a, a horrible person pretty quickly by advocating for that stuff. And so it, it's a complex topic that, that requires some nuance and some detail. And in the, the current environment, and unfortunately, I, I feel like, you know, going forward, it, it's very difficult to unpack those things and have discussions around them. And there's so much, you know, one thing that, that COVID did, it really awakened in people the sense that like, Everybody should do one thing for the greater good. Sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes that's that's completely inappropriate and really dangerous. And and this is COVID, climate change, and social justice topics have all gotten wrapped together in this super ambiguous, easily manipulated fashion that, you know, even the real important stuff that needs to be addressed in these these situations isn't really being addressed because we can't talk about it in any meaningful way. So I, I find that to be really difficult and dangerous. And I guess, you know, if folks believe in this regenerative vaccine or even just curious about it, 
like when they see people getting, you know, dogpiled when they're trying to have a discussion like this, like these are the folks that we need to stand up for, even to the tune of like, they may be wrong. The, you know, maybe Diana and I are totally wrong and we got all this stuff wrong, but, you know, we, we've we carried sway with a good number of people. So maybe we should have a big discussion around this so we can figure out what we did get wrong. Or maybe we're right about it. And it, and it would be helpful to get the the winning methodology out there so that we can we can scale this and make sure that this benefits many more people. The censorship and not being able to talk about things is just frightening to an unbelievable amount, in my opinion. And um, I cannot recommend enough that listeners read Sacred Cow. Now, anytime that I have a conversation with somebody where they have a very one-sided opinion about the climate change and the role of farming and agriculture. I'm like, just retake her cow and then let's have a discussion about it. But I think what's so confusing and it's confusing to me is that it's just presented, especially the people that present a completely plant-based system for the sustainability of our future and our environment. It's just presented as fact. And it's coming from people who I think would know a lot about it because they're so obsessed with it. And so it's confusing, like just reading your book, I'm like, oh, wait, maybe this isn't actually what's going on. And maybe the stats are a little bit different than what we've been told. And it's just, it's very confusing and there's just a lack of education. And so I understand why people are confused and I just thank you for what you're doing to spread more information about all of it. (laughs) Thank you. I always think back to like the old Bugs Bunny cartoons where cartoon characters are like in the military and they're, they're all lined up. And then they're like, we have this dangerous mission and we need two volunteers. And the whole line takes a step back, except the two idiots not paying attention. And I, I feel like Diana and I are the, the two idiots. We just looked around and we're like, oh my God, how did we end up here? You know, it's interesting. It, it just, just as a, a point here, I, I mentioned this in kind of the news topic of my recent podcast, but for Two decades, it's been recommended that folks should, uh, risk of cardiovascular disease, should take a baby aspirin a day. This idea came about because it's it's understood that aspirin has some anti-thrombic, some anti-clotting properties, and and clots are at least a part of some cardiovascular events, some stroke events. And so there was some some good, you know, thought behind it. There was a good hypothesis. There was a plausible mechanism. There was some research. It seemed to suggest that this was beneficial. But then as time motored forward and we started looking at five years, 10 years, 20 years of people doing baby aspirin and we looked at all-cause mortality, it didn't seem to benefit anybody and it seemed to actually be doing damage. Like the all-cause mortality was greater in the baby aspirin situations than, than the people who weren't taking the baby aspirin, you know, across these, these big groups of people. And correlation isn't always causation, but it starts becoming, you, you know, compelling the larger the sample size, the more data that's there and all that type of stuff. So now the American Medical Association and, and you know, associated bodies are suggesting don't take the baby aspirin, you know, and this is something that became medical orthodoxy. It was an idea. It got tested. It looked promising. Time went by and then more data was accumulated. And upon further review, it looks like it's more dangerous to take the baby aspirin in general than not. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that there are some people for whom that baby aspirin is likely a really smart move. 
And that's probably something that like working with your doctor and maybe doing a little genetic testing and stuff like that to, to figure out if that really is a, a good fit for you. But at a population wide, at a public health level implementation, they are completely upending that recommendation. So when people say follow the science, you, you've got to have a, an understanding that science is, should have a sign on it that says good until further notice. And when you say the science is settled, like unless we're talking about things like a pool table and billiard balls, and we know the mass of the pool, pool balls and how the velocity and where they're going to bounce on this very simple system. Okay. The, the science is settled, you know, gravity, we can predict where the planets are a thousand years from now. But when you get into even more complex systems like biology and human health and public health, it's a really slippery slope to, to say much of anything is settled. Like, antibiotics save lives, healthy eating is good, proper sleep hygiene is incredibly beneficial. And then it, it starts getting really dubious from there. You know, exercise will improve the quality of your life. It probably won't extend the duration of your life. Like we have some, some understandings there, but then above and beyond that, things get murky really fast. And then when we start talking about like a global food system and what should or shouldn't be, you know, like the mainstay and do we really want it even more monocropped and 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 less variety which is what a a a plant-based story is you know it's like people at the arctic circle are going to be eating grains raised at the middle latitudes and does that make sense <laughs> you know from a from a distribution per perspective and a whole bunch of other things well to that point so for people wanting to make change Todd and Mary Ann, they say, what is a good starting spot for those interested in regenerative agriculture? She says, I have a huge chunk of land and want to make it bountiful. Mm. Hmm. Isn't that a great question? That made me so excited. <laughs> I was like, oh, tell me more. I'm jealous. There's lots of things you could do. Running the animals yourself can be a, a big commitment. Like that's something we've wanted to do, but we just haven't been in a a position to do ourselves. But if you are in a position to manage those animals yourself, you can reach out to a Savory Institute hub or Holistic Management International. And you can you can go through training courses. They'll help you figure out. So you live in this environment and maybe sheep would be better than cows or, you know, whatever. And so you you start thinking about the, the animals and the plants that you could do in that scenario. If you have a big chunk of land, but you aren't in a position to manage it yourself. Like we are friends with the Rome free bison operation here in Northwestern Montana. And what those folks do, they own some significant chunks of land, but they've also leased land from some of the local native American, you know, groups and some private individuals. So you might open up your land for lease and you find somebody who is doing this holistic management process and, and then, you know, afford them an opportunity to, to make use of that land and to reinvigorate that land because these grasslands co-evolved with grazing animals. The, the two go hand in glove and without grazing animals on that land, it will desertify. It will revert to this kind of desertified area that's, that's a lot of like sagebrush and, and high erosion and not, not very productive. That stuff can be recovered. It takes a lot of effort and time, but you know, it's better to head that off. And the way that you prevent that occurring is is by implementing these holistic management practices. So making that land available for lease could be an amazing opportunity there. Awesome. Do you guys have land in Montana? 
just a little bit. We're we're on two acres here. We're right on a little kettle lake. The HOAs preclude having any animals, but we are looking at some some land within like a 10-minute drive because both of the girls are getting into horseback riding and we want to do some some other kind of resiliency related stuff. And so we're we're looking at trying to to find something within a, a short drive of where we are and then we could start spinning up some of that stuff. Awesome. Very, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Rob. This has been absolutely amazing. I know listeners are going to love it and I'm excited because now we can use it as like a, a resource episode that I can refer listeners to whenever we get questions about electrolytes and all the things. And I haven't even yet mentioned the amazing offer that you have for our audience, which Friends, if you haven't done this yet, you have got to get on this. It's a no-brainer. You can actually go to drinkelement.com. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash IF podcast. And you can get a free sampler pack for Element. Yes, completely free. You just pay a small shipping. And then I know Rob has made it known that even if you don't like it for whatever reason, they will even reimburse you shipping. And that's been very, very popular with our audience. So definitely get on that. And I just thank you so much. Um, I'm just always forever in awe and grateful for everything that you're doing. It just, it has personally changed my life. Like I would not be doing what I was crying again. I would not be doing what I'm doing today um, if I had not read your book. So listeners, if anybody has benefited from this show or from any of my shows or any of my content, I wouldn't be here without Rob Wolf. So I'm not going to cry. Um, thank you. <laughs> this has been amazing. So I just, I really can't thank you enough. And um, hopefully we can connect again in the future on, there's so many things, so many topics, but thank you for all that you do. Thank you. And I, I, I've got to say, there's no greater joy than knowing that one's, I, I am going to start crying. There's no greater joy knowing that one's work has benefited someone else and particularly someone like you that you've, you've helped so damn many people. So that, that really is just like the, the crown jewel of, of, you know, my, my life and my existence is knowing that my work has mattered to you. So thank you. Well, thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. Enjoy the cold. I'm so jealous. Enjoy the snow flurries. I, I will. I'm going to take the dog for a walk and it, it's a little bit of snow flurries. So we'll, we'll see how he handles it. He's kind of a wimp in the cold. I'm going to have to buy him a jacket. Oh man. All right. Well, have a good evening. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcast, Intermittent Fasting Stories, and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.